0: you go ahead and turn to that portion that Reverend Bannister read earlier in Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> you'll have to forgive me because I too am working through cold. Well, I don't think it's a cold, I think it's uh, allergies, which is weird because I usually don't get them like this. So if I have to pause and get a drink of water or clear my throat a little bit, uh, you'll have to forgive me, but it would be weird if you didn't forgive me for this, so... Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking this morning primarily at, at verse 14. We're actually looking at that to kind of to look backwards from that verse at things that the Apostle Paul has already written in this chapter, but I need the Lord's help this morning, and all of y'all need the Lord's help this morning to hear His word, so let's ask Him for that help now as we come to look at this passage. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks that you have spoken, that you have spoken to thy people through thy word, and though this world and the devil has Lord, spent countless lives and time trying to take your word from us, we give you thanks that for 2,000 years you have preserved this word, and that it has now come to us, this this morning, to sanctify Thy people, that we would learn of Christ, that we would know what we have in Him. But Lord, as You have preserved this Word for so long, we ask that You would cause it to be delivered effectively to Your people this morning. The devil does not want us to hear what You have to say. and would even cause Thy Lord's servant to go astray in his own mind and to say things that Lord would not be your intention for your people this morning. Lord, we pray you would protect the preacher this morning. Deliver me from saying anything against, contrary to thy word. And we ask that thy people would hear, despite the difficulties of this life, the infirmities of our bodies, that we would have our spirits enlivened and able to hear the voice of God this Sunday morning. Or this is our desire. And as our Father, we give Thee thanks that You grant the desires of Thy people. So come. Come and speak, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. I was listening to a lot of sermons on this, on this passage, and particularly in verse 14, and it was from one man. I can't remember exactly who it was, but he said... At of, of, of verse 12, where it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. That, that is actually a first in this book. It is the first time that the you know, Apostle Paul has given the church an imperative, a command to do something. So he's spent five chapters telling them what is true what is true of, of them, what is true of God and of Christ. But that tells us something that is very important for us to understand when it comes to living the Christian life. And that's that more than anything else, it's, it's not about our effort or our willpower to, to live this life, to, to be righteous. What really matters is what we know and what we believe. And that is what changes the way we live. Because you know, something is, is implied in verse 12. And that's that it is possible for, have, for, a, for a Christian to have sin reigning in their life. And that is what, that's why the Apostle Paul has to command us to not allow this to happen. To not let it be. So if we want our lives to be defined by righteousness and not by sin, it's all about what we believe. What we believe that shapes our view of sin, that makes it in our eyes either desirable or something that we, have not, we want nothing to do with. And what we believe, it makes the law of God beautiful. And something that we desire and will gladly follow. But I know for every Christian gathered here this morning, that is what you want. You want to obey God's law. You want to live a life that is pleasing to Him. But to do that, we have to study passages like this and we have to hear what the Lord has to say. And this isn't, this isn't just something that you know, we're doing on our own. But God is our teacher. He's the one that increases our faith, that persuades us that what I am telling you is true. So in order that we would fulfill that command in verse 12, that we would not let sin have dominion over us, we're going to be looking at verse 14, which tells us, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And just very, very briefly, this verse is not talking about living a life that's totally free from sin. I have to mention it that because so many have taken it that way. But the Apostle Paul, the same writer, one chapter over says of himself, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? As long as we live on this earth, sin will be a rebel. In the Christian's body and in his mind. But it will not be his king. It cannot be his king. That is what the dominion of sin is. So it's from Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 that I would like to preach to you this morning on how righteousness reigns. How righteousness reigns. The first thing is that sin is dethroned. Verse 14, it opens with the words, for sin shall not have dominion over you. And there's something that's very important for us to recognize in those words. And that is, it is not a command. It is a statement of fact. Sin will not, it shall not have dominion over you. We'll look Later on, we'll look more at at exactly why that is true. But for now, we just need to look at what that means. And the first thing here is that sin does not define you. When sin had dominion over us, you could see it as if we were citizens of, of that country, of the dominion of sin. If, if, you, if you ask a person, if you were to ask me or I was to ask you who you were, you would be right to define yourself as saying, I'm an American, or maybe I'm a Canadian. And that is part of, of who you are, of what defines you, one of the defining features of your identity. And what does the Bible say that defines men? If, if someone is unsaved, The Bible calls them children of wrath, that they belong to the kingdom of darkness. But the Christian is not defined that way. We are called the sons of God, members of the kingdom of Christ. Because of that, we have no right to define ourselves as who we are by the old country, by what we once did belong to. I say this because people do this today and we still do this. We can see ourselves and define ourselves in our minds as being sinners. Something that is very common today is what is known as, as side B Christianity. And that is for someone to have homosexual desires or sins. And side B, Christianity says, well, they can define themselves as being a gay Christian. They just don't practice that sin, and that's fine. But that is to define ourselves by a sin, by saying that it belongs to us, that it is such a part of us. And that is just just totally contrary to what this text is telling us. But you know, for us, that can be the easy thing to point at and say, oh yeah, that's that's totally wrong and, and we're nothing like that. But we still define ourselves by our sins at times. We can struggle with outbursts of anger. Being angry all the time when we're driving down the road or being anxious all the time. And we define ourselves by that when we say, well... This is, this is just who I am. It's a part of me. I am, I'm an angry Christian. I'm an anxious Christian. There's no difference from what we were just talking about in that. Defining ourselves by our sins. We do struggle with these things. We do struggle with anxiety and with anger. But that is not who we are. That is what this text is telling us. We see also here that sin has no authority over us. When sin comes to the door, and it knocks with a temptation, it makes all the difference in the world whether or not you'll open that door if you believe that that is the one that owns the house or not. If if, If sin is your master. Because if it's the master, we have to open the door and we have no right to keep it out when the temptation comes. But our text tells us plainly who owns the house and who our master is when it says that sin shall not have dominion over you. And we must believe that because it is a a way that the devil tempts his people the, the devil tempts the people of God to sin because he commands them to follow Him. And he barks orders at them. And we can be inclined to follow Him because there was a time when we were slaves to sin, when we did follow His commands. But we had this, this change of dominion, this change of, of who we are. And because of that, we have to change our thinking and say, no, this is not your home. You do not belong here. You have absolutely no right in my life to take anything. But we go on here from these two things that we just looked at. We see that righteousness does define you. Since those two things we looked at were true, then this must be true. That righteousness defines every Christian. Because if sin does not have dominion over us, and that is a statement of fact, and what does have dominion over us is Christ, it is righteousness. This is not something where we have to live a good life to to work this up within ourselves. This is something that belongs to every Christian. To someone who is, is just saved. There's no qualification for verse 14 whatsoever. The Apostle Paul just simply says, sin shall not have dominion over you, period. Then righteousness must have dominion over us. Why is that true? Why is it that we are not ruled by sin? Well, that's what we come to look at next in the two other things that verse 14 says. And the first reason is that we are freed from the law. Our text says, one of the reasons sin will not have dominion over you is that ye are not under the law. Now, just briefly that that is not saying that okay you shouldn't obey the law of God anymore because then that would make the verse make absolutely no sense that sin doesn't have dominion over us but ignore the law. Well then we're still in sin if we ignore the law. Well, what it's talking about with law here is, is that covenant of works that you are not under the, the obligation to keep the law to be right with God. That covenant of works that provides no help whatsoever. You are not under that. You are under the covenant of grace. That is what Paul is referring to. But we'll look at some things That is implied from being freed from the law. And the first I just mentioned is that we are not under its obligations anymore. When someone is born, they are born with an obligation to keep the law of God completely, to be right with God. But from the get-go when they're born, they are also born as men and women who have broken that law in Adam because we are joined to him. And you see proof of that from man's own conscience. Man's own conscience convicts him and it pushes him that I have to do what's right. He feels that obligation, that pressure of that. And so his his conscience, all it can do is just whip him to do better, to do more, and it never does anything beyond whipping him. And men spend their life perhaps either trying to live a better life to appease their conscience or in numbing their conscience so they don't have to hear the cracking of the whip anymore. But at the same time, for all the good that men try to do, the conscience still convicts them that it's not enough. The obligation has not been fulfilled. But for the Christian, we, you and I, are not under that obligation of the law to live, to be, to be right with God. We are not under that obligation. We're not under this hopeless demands of our conscience to, to do better, to always be doing more, to live up to this standard that you cannot keep. We are freed from that. It takes that crushing burden of obligation and it removes it from our backs. Like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress. And it rolls away. And we are free. You see also, being freed from the law means that we are not under its guilt anymore. We're not just free from the obligation in order to be to be right with God we must keep this but we are free from the guilt of all the sins that we have broken or all of the, all the laws of God that we have broken with our sins because when when Christ came and he fulfilled the law you see he was freeing us from the obligation to keep the law to live, to be, to make it to heaven, to be in Him. But when Christ died, He freed us from the guilt of that law. Because that guilt was taken from us and it was put on His account and He was punished as a guilty man. The Word of God says, for He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Well, that's It's important for us to understand that because if you and I can't get away, if we can't have our, our consciences eased from the guilt of the laws that we have broken, of the punishments that we deserve, then you actually won't stop sinning if you can't get away from the guilt. Because The guilt and and the sin itself is a way of punishing yourself. And if you can't get away from the guilt, why wouldn't you punish yourself? And if you can't get away from the guilt, why would you try to be free from your sins? They are your only comfort. What's the point of being free from sin and just having that guilt on you continually? That perhaps, yes, you, you you won't sin again, but the guilt is always there. And the price of it is eternity in hell under the judgment of God. So we have to be free from that guilt. And we are free from that guilt because we are not under the law. Secondly, we come to look at what else does verse 14 say? And it's that grace empowers. This is thirdly and finally. You see in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, we are not under the law, but under grace. This, this is the truth that gives us power to live the Christian life. This is the thing that, that we must understand and we must believe so that our lives would be changed, so that we would live Differently and be free from our sins and not be dominated by them. And be, being under grace, it, it, it means a lot of things. There is a very large store of heavenly blessings that it means to be under grace. But the Apostle Paul actually, he mentions a few in chapter 6. And so we go back to look at them. And the first thing, Is that we are joined to Christ. In the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about being baptized into Jesus Christ. And and what that means is that we are joined together with Him. In, In this chapter, he's talking more specifically about life and death, but let's just pause there. What does it mean to be joined to Christ? The, the Word of God uses a lot of a lot of different illustrations and pictures to help us see what that means. It talks about it, it's like being grafted into a vine, being made a part of his body. But it also talks about it in a very helpful and simple way, where it speaks of it as it like it's marriage. It's similar to marriage, being joined to Christ. And in marriage, who owns the stuff? Who is, who is the owner of, of the property and of the things that, that a couple has? Well it's it's both parties. Both of them own everything equally. In, in 1 Corinthians 7 4, we're even told that our own bodies are not ours, but our bodies they belong to your partner in marriage. So everything is, is shared. It is jointly owned but now you take that truth and you apply it to us being in Christ. Everything that He has is ours. That's what it means to be joined to Christ. The voice of Jesus is ours because when we pray, when we come and we speak to God, Christ speaks with us. He takes our prayers. And so His voice is ours. His his voice is ours in this spoken word that He has given to us, that we would learn as we are this morning. His blood is ours. As it has shed us, it has has cleaned us from our sin. His His heart is ours. The compassion that He has for His people. His spirit is ours. He lives inside of us so that it can be said that God is in us. If you open up the vault room of heaven and and look at all the blessings that Christ has, that He is the owner of, everything that is in His possession, the Christian can look at it and say, these things are mine because I am joined to Christ. That's what it means to be joined with Him. And for our purposes today, that means that everything that you need to have righteousness reigning in your life, to not be under the dominion of sin, all of it that Christ has is yours, that you would live that life. But the two things that Paul mentions that we have being joined with him to Christ in this chapter, is that we we died with him. In verse 3 it tells us this, And we needed this death. We needed to die. A picture that will help us to understand what exactly is going on here with this death. It's a spiritual death, but if you could picture this in your mind, look at yourself in the mirror. Like Picture yourself in your own mind. And now take that and see yourself, but you were never saved. And who do you see? You see someone who has no love for God. They do not love Christ. They love their sins. They will never choose to be free from their sins. They will never choose Christ. They may even see His death on the cross and they might be moved emotionally. But at the end of the day, they do not want Him. They want their sin. That is you when you see yourself unsaved in the mirror and when you see that when you see yourself that way you see that person has to die he has to come to nothing they must go away that is what we have in Christ that person that none of us desire to be is gone he is or she is dead and gone now that we are in Christ and now we do love him we do love his law and we can never fully we can our love for him can never be extinguished and we do choose him even though we fight over sin but we see also that we are alive with him because death is only an ending it's only a stopping point that old you that you saw in the mirror okay well they 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 are no longer here they are they are dead and gone, and now you are a new creature with new desires and alive in Christ. but the Christian, as Christians, you and I we don't just come to an empty grave we well we don't just come to a cross, we come to an empty tomb. In verse five, it says, "For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection in Christ, we don't just die to our old ways, to who we were, but we are new people, new creations. And that is because you are joined together in Christ, in His resurrection. In verse 4 it says, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It says there we were raised that we are raised up in Christ by the glory of the Father. What is that saying? That is that is saying that if you consider the power, the glory, the the might that was required to raise up Christ from the dead. So now he is he is free from the, from from his corruptible flesh. And free from death where it has no more dominion over Him. The power of God that was, that was on Christ when it raised Him from the dead, that same power now is used on us that we would live, that we would rise, that we would be glorified, that we would put off this sinful flesh. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it's speaking of the same thing. Where it says, the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to know these things. I want you to know this. This is so important that you get this. What is the exceeding greatness of His power? That is God's power to to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. You know, we look at our sins and we see this thing that is, is overwhelmingly powerful against us. This thing that is able to, it seems, just bully us around and beat us down and push us around. And we can say that yes, sin is stronger than me. I know that if you think of your sins, you will see things that are stronger than you, that overpower you. But are they stronger? Are they greater than the power of God? No. They are not. And it is the power of God that we have being joined to Christ that will cause us to live, to have righteousness reigning in our lives and sin not having dominion over us. I come to a close. we think about these things, you may wonder and ask, how is it that that some Christians seem to live under the dominion of sin? How is it that Christians get into so deep sin, and even in the Scriptures, it seems that they die? that That the Lord takes them from this world because their sin seemed to have dominion over them. That's what it looked like. That's because the only way for sin to to have dominion over the christian to rule him is for the christian to believe the lies of satan that sin is your master and to be to for the christian to not see the blessings that they have in christ if a christian doesn't know what they have then sin can win but if christian if you know what you have and you believe in those blessings Sin cannot have dominion over you. You can and you will have victories over sin. You will fight it all your days, but there will be a growing, a growing in righteousness when you have a growth in your understanding, in your faith, in believing what God says about me what god says about his son what i have in him that i am not under the law i am not under this obligation that does nothing that except beat me down and remind me that i am a failure i am not under the guilt because christ paid the penalty i am under grace christ i am i am joined to him i am alive because I died. And one day He will glorify me. And I will be free from the rebelliousness of sin in this body that will be true of us. Let us live. Let us pray and ask the Lord to cause us to believe these things are true. Let's close in prayer. our gracious God and Heavenly Father. Lord, come before Thee now and ask that You would impress these things on our hearts. Lord, teach us. Teach us to believe that these things are true. Lord, open the eyes of faith that we would see the storehouse of heaven, that we would see the face of our Savior, that we would cry out, I am His and He is mine. I want nothing to do with sin. Lord, we want to be free. Free to live righteously before Thee. We give Thee thanks that this is Your desire for every one of Thy people gathered here this morning. Lord, give it to us. Lord, build it in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.